are you stepping down from the Levitard show? What's happening here? Is there a big I'm, announcement? I'm about to make an official announcement. This is The Greg Cody Show with Greg Cody. Pardon it. Here's your host, the oldest man to ever start a podcast, Greg Cody. I want to say something about my son, Christopher. You all know him. Wonderful guy. Wonderful parent. Great husband. Great son. The world's worst gardener. (laughs) We, uh... (laughs) A couple of days ago, we're in his backyard at his request. I come over. I'm like a plant medic. And um, Christopher doesn't know which end of the plant to plant. He doesn't <laughs> know whether the roots go in first or the leaves. It's, uh, Christopher, tell me, you have a newfound love of gardening, which I love because, you know, I have a couple of green thumbs. I'm not bragging. I'm just facting. And you're sort of learning the whole thing about gardening. So I want you to walk people through uh, being a novice Who's, who's attempting to, to have a green thumb. Well, look, I'm trying to become an adult in a lot of ways, you know, being <laughs> handier around the house, cooking more, you know, just I want to I, I want to be the guy that can do things on his own and not call you or my mother-in-law over to do things for me. It's quite okay. embarrassing. So, yes, I it's everything is, you're saying is fair. I do know the right side of the plant that goes in the ground, but your point <laughs> is well taken. I you're a lot better at this than I am. It took me like six hours to weed a little patch. Then you came over and did the same amount of work in about 40 minutes. So I know my weaknesses and I know my strengths and gardening is not one of them. And I appreciate your help because I now have a little herb garden going. It's flourishing, I'd say. We planted a pineapple plant. I'm, I'm getting there. It's all fair criticism though. I can't really deny what you're saying. Okay, well, this is the famous pineapple plant that, that I gave you. So this, uh, I bequeath this upon you, and after time, uh, you will have a pineapple to cut down yourself. But uh, let's move on. Uh, this is the Greg Cody Show with Greg Cody and Chris Cody, and this is a um, prestigious episode 24. Why is 24 like an important number? You know, in sports, it's, it's a famous number. You know, a lot of famous people have worn 24 with aplomb and alacrity, and uh, we're carrying on that tradition with a big episode 24 coming up we um i want one time you to just be like this episode 29 just okay <laughs> right well the <laughs> the listeners uh, will will be the judge of that each and every week um we have an interesting guest on today he's a local guy i'm not even gonna say his name yet because you wouldn't know it but he's a guy in south florida running for office he's running for supervisor of elections and he's also a guy who's a screenwriter uh, who has a movie that you can go watch on Netflix right now. So I, I found that a, a very interesting combination. We also have in the author of a book called Wax Pack. This premise intrigued me because I grew up collecting baseball cards. This guy has an interesting premise for a book. He picked a pack of cards from sometime in the 1980s and tracked down or tried to track down everybody in that pack, uh, which is uh, an intriguing premise to me. So we, we chat with him as well. And uh, of course, Later in the episode, we have uh, the latest Mount Gregmore name game. This is ostensibly a sports podcast, so I do want to say one thing sportsy, which is, have you noticed? Football season is falling apart uh, by degrees. It's collapsing right in front of us. Uh, The Mid-American Conference, the the beloved MAC, has opted out of the 2020 season, the first FBS-level league to do so. Uh, NFL opt-outs are in the 70 range. Uh, down here, the Miami Hurricanes just lost ACC sacks leader and future number one draft pick Gregory Rousseau, to, who opted out of the season. I mean, it's happening. Football is collapsing. 
it's going to face the same travel issues we're seeing in baseball, uh, except it's more dangerous because it's a uh, contact sport to the extreme. And um, I'm beginning to wonder whether football is going to happen. I know it's not going to happen with fans, at least initially. But uh, do you think it's going to happen? I know everyone's going to do everything in their power to make it happen because of how important it is, college especially. That's the more interesting one to me because the pro leagues, I feel like the NFL could survive. Let's say we had to cancel all the football seasons or at least push them back real far. Like the NFL would start up when it finally can and be fine. College is like like how much college – sports programs are dependent on football that's the thing i'm watching is just like what's going to happen with college football because it's so important like i think what they're going to end up doing is just pushing it to like the spring if they have to like there's no way they're going to cancel college football they're just going to keep pushing it back or shrinking it i mean i and i know you said that like there's already been a conference that canceled football this season so like that kind of goes against what i'm saying but like i just feel like there's just no way it's going to completely go away in college football yeah people are um, going to try to play their 2020 season in the spring of 21. But the problem is there's no guarantee we're going to be past this thing in 21, not to get, not to get too pessimistic. But um, I want to say one thing about the Levitard show and, and you work on the Levitard show full time and, and I'm on it once a week. And are you stepping down from the Levitard show? What's happening here? Is there a big I'm, announcement? I'm about to make an official announcement. Um, seriously, when, whenever people ask me about my job, other than are the bleeping Miami Dolphins ever going to be good again? The questions other than that are pretty consistently uh, revolve around my, my role on the Levitard show. You know, uh, hey, is, is Stu Gotts really like that? Do you miss the hard network outs on purpose? Why is Dan so mean to you? You know, stuff like that. So as a public service, I want to spend a minute talking about me on the Levitard show and, and what I like the most about it and also what I don't like so much. Wow. I'm going to write this down. Hold on. Go ahead. <laughs> Um, and, and I need to emphasize that the likes outweigh the dislikes by a lot, or I wouldn't be doing it. Pros and cons. Pretty much. Um, in no particular order. I, I, I love the camaraderie a lot. Uh, although we lose so much of that not being in the same studio together. Dan and I don't actually see each other a lot to socialize. We, I don't think we've done that since it was just before the Super Bowl when he accompanied me to pick up my credential, and then we ended up in some... Uh, bar on South Beach. and Well, we've been in a pandemic. I don't think anyone's doing right. a lot of socializing. No, but, but my point is that's a rarity. You know, we were drinking tequila all afternoon and, and doing the real friendship thing. And, and so the show is sort of my Dan time. So I like that. I like the weekly paycheck from Disney. I ain't going to lie. <laughs> uh, and it's so weird that it says Disney. You know, whenever I cash a check, I, I still do it old school. I go in a bank and cash a check. So we're legitimately going through your list of things you like and don't like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's going to be pretty quick. Uh, I, I'm still on the likes. I like the the crappity, <laughs> crappity. <laughs> I like the crappy celebrity. I'm not going to lie about that. Uh, you know, when I go to those Moss Miami things, the the show's fans make me feel like a rock star. They're they're amazing people. I'm in Publix yesterday. I swear on my life, this happened. I'm I'm looking for thin sliced chicken cutlets to make schnitzel, and and through his mask, somebody whispers to me. You never know. I mean, I'm, I'm getting recognized with a mask on, which always blows my mind. How close did he get? Not too close, I hope. No, 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 no. He, he was like <laughs> a shopping cart away, but um, uh, he was smiling through his mask. I'm having there. trouble hearing people during all this. Are you? I feel like I'm <laughs> yeah. like at restaurants and stuff. I'm like, I'm, part, I'm sorry, what? Yeah, it is a little muffled. You're right. <laughs> and I guess, uh, I guess the last thing I like about the show, frankly, is that it's given you 
an opportunity to to grow into this and and become a valuable producer and nepotism for sure. Lebetism. Uh, well, <laughs> yeah, the door opened for you, cracked open for you because of that. But you you kicked it open and you've done very well. I know. I'm just making a joke. You don't have to get. Yeah, it. that's that's the proud parent talking. But now um, I, I do want to say stuff I don't like so much because no job is perfect. Oh well, um, hold on. We got. Let me get some dramatic music. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> I don't particularly enjoy the hard net workout thing. I, I'm going to be honest. With really. You. I, I know it's good for the show. I know it's good for you. It. That is such a BS. See, I'm going to fight you on all these. Like oh, the hard network out. People love that. I just said it's good for the show and the listeners love you, it. I don't love it. You would that there's two bits that, that are involving you that if they didn't exist, you would just be a guy on the show that like people didn't love as much back in my day, which is all you, you write that and the hard network out. I'd say those two things, the reason that you go to these Moss Miami events and you're like the second biggest star outside of Stu Gox, it's because of that. All right, you can keep going. I'm just saying that you should love the Hard Network out. I love that the show Why loves it. Why don't you love it? I love that the fan lo- fans love it. Because the, the audience is getting cut off from your knowledge that is being given to the people. You're giving people something and it is being cut off. Well, more than once, on many occasions, in fact, it is a serious question, and I actually have something to say, but me being cut off is more important than what I have to say, which is, you know. Anytime we've cut you off and it's like genuinely serious what you're saying, we always give you a chance to continue what you were saying. Okay, I, I just wish, and, and this sort of segues into my other thing that I don't particularly like. I, I just wish I had a little more breathing room to not just play the caricature. The, the musty old columnist, the buffoon to be made fun of. Honestly, I've told you this before, a big reason why I wanted to start a podcast is to show what I think is a fuller version of myself than is seen and heard on Tuesdays. And and But that, but that's like the show. Like every single person is like kind of pigeonholed into like a character. And there are right. times where, there's times where I say something that and they take it and run with it and it becomes a big joke, mocking things. Stu Gatz is like the biggest of that. Like, Anything Stugat says, we start making fun of. Like, that's what you sign up for. Like, Stugat often says, being mocked by Dan, it pays well. Right. <laughs> and again, bottom line, it's all good. Uh, I right. love every. But you're I just doing every... pros and cons. I get you. I'm sorry for. I'm, I'm fighting back pretty hard against you. Just keep going. I'm sorry. No, I mean, I'm, I'm done. I mean, the, the, the likes outweigh the dislikes. Oh, so. that was it. So it's basically you wish to be taken slightly more seriously at times and the hard to work out. I just wish there was a little more balance on the show where... That's fair. And look, the reason I don't mind saying this in my podcast is that Dan and I have had this conversation uh, personally and in text and stuff like that, but... No more negatives? No, I mean, I'm, it's all good. I just wanted to share a couple of likes and dislikes, that's all. Uh, hey, the money uh, I get from the show just paid for a new pool deck, so there's that too. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it's a beautiful pool deck. You've, you've been on it. Um, I've peed right. in it. On my pool deck? No, nah, it's just a pool. It's a pee pool. You know, pool, pool right. pee People know by now I shampoo my hair in the pool, but let's not let's not repeat that. All right, before we get into the show proper, um, I, I wanted to say something because I hear from people occasionally who are like, "Wow, why do you talk so slow?" You know, I'm I'm not a perfect public speaker. It's funny. I, it's funny that you were actually just talking fast when you started to go into your line about talking slow. So you had to slow down to like <laughs> make sure that you saying people say you talk slow actually fit. 
That's a good point. I, you know what? I am prone to fluctuations. I'm prone to all of a sudden talking pretty slow and throwing in a bunch of ums and uhs. And then all of a sudden I'll get into a rant where I'm talking like a, an auctioneer. You know, I'm going really fast. But I, I do want to share this with people. I used to talk a lot slower. Okay, the voice you're hearing right now is after I've had a voice coach try to speed me up a little bit because I'm going to give you a, a, a small example of what I used to sound like. Why do we call left-handed pitchers southpaws? Righties are never called northpaws. And why are we giving human beings paws anyway like dogs? So you're saying when you used to talk really slow, you mean a couple episodes ago when you said that? <laughs> well, it seems like further ago than that, but was it a couple episodes? But, you know, I mean, that's what it used to sound like. And then, you know, once I realized that was too slow, I went back to the voice coach and it became the other extreme. All of a sudden, I'm, I'm like I'm on amphetamines or something. It, it, and I think maybe it was too fast. Why do we call left-handed pitchers southpaws? Righties are never called northpaws. And why are we giving human beings paws anyway, like dogs? Do you feel good about this bit? Do you feel good yeah. about yourself? Do you feel like we've done good work here? <laughs> yeah, I, I do. Because... Do you feel like we've tricked the audience into believing that you actually used to have these you know, right. issues where you would talk really slow and really fast? I used to talk really <laughs> slow and then really fast. And so I want people to appreciate this uh, version of my like, voice. I feel like we need to let the people in behind the curtain here. And Greg Cody has been pushing for this particular bit for about five weeks on the podcast. And I was just like, it's not, it's just me slowing down some audio and speeding up for some audio. Well, and, Greg, <laughs> and Greg would respond to me via text with all caps. Trust me on this one. Well, here we are. We did it. <laughs> and, the, <laughs> and I well, hope you're proud. Let me tell you the genesis of me jonesing to, to have this on the air was that I just recently discovered that you could slow down and speed up See? when listening to a podcast. <laughs> but everybody else has already discovered that. So okay, well, I discover on my own pace. Greg Cody's going to be listening to this back. Ah, that's a <laughs> slow. Now he's fast. <laughs> and everybody else is going to be like, what is Greg Cody doing right now? <laughs> okay, and lately, here's a life hack for you. Lately, I've been listening to my own podcast at 1.5 speed which means I can listen to a 40 minute podcast in like 30 minutes. It's right. great. <laughs> you... oh, everybody knows that. Yes. All right. Well, I thought I was, uh, Some people, people listen double speed. Well, that's a bit much, isn't it? I mean, it's one of those things that you get used to it. It'll be weird. Like the first 10 minutes of listening to a podcast, but if you start doing it, like there's people out there that listen to a ton of, I mean, there's people that listen to this podcast. So you have to imagine there's nobody out there that just listens to this podcast. Oh, I think there are. And I think half of them are listening to it at 0 0.5 speed and spending an hour and a half listening to the podcast. I would love, and, and, and people are going to reach out to us and, and, and lie about this just for, to get our attention. But please, if you are out there and you only listen to the Greg Cody show with Greg Cody. <laughs> it's the only podcast that you digest in your entire life every week. Please reach out to us because we'd like to talk to you. <laughs> and how are they going to reach out? You say reach out. What does yeah, that mean? Tweet, social All media. Right. God, you're so old. Anyways, let's get on with this episode. All right, let's roll. Hey, everyone. When we started this podcast, I told you it would be a variety show that uh, you wouldn't know what's coming next. And this is a perfect example. Uh, welcome to the pod, um, Chad Klitzman. He's uh, a lawyer, graduated from Columbia Law School. 
he wrote the screenplay that became the movie Candy Jar out in 2018 and now on Netflix. Currently, he is running for supervisor of elections in Broward County. Now, I have to say, uh, Chad, I, I saw one of your campaign flyers in the mail. I live in Broward. And uh, in a very understated way, easy to overlook, it mentioned screenwriter among your accomplishments. And I'm like, huh, what? I, I got to find out about this. And, and you were kind enough to come onto the podcast. So are you a screenwriter now dabbling in politics or a politician who happened to write a movie? I'm trying to figure that out. Yeah, well, first, thank you so much for having me on the uh, on the podcast. Happy to be here. Obviously, right, when you're running for supervisor of elections, screenwriter is, is a job prerequisite, right? Uh, so <laughs> listen, I, I, I have been interested in politics for basically my entire life, and I have been interested in film for basically that same amount of time. Uh, I have never viewed the law and screenwriting as mutually exclusive activities. Uh, in many respects, I think they complement each other really well. Uh, because in the law, especially if you're on the litigation side, it really is all about storytelling. So if you are a great storyteller, that applies to the world of law. It applies to a lot of other fields as well. So I was fortunate enough, as you noted, to have a screenplay that I wrote when I was in college, produced while I was in law school. Uh, and it came out uh, literally on the last day of law school in 2018. And it was a tremendous experience for me. But I have always viewed screenwriting as a hobby. I try to write for 30 minutes a day politics, the law, elections, that's my focus. Uh, but it's great to have a creative medium like screenwriting to go to at the end of the day to help me process the crazy world that we live in. First of all, tell people uh, about the film. Um, it's, it's what, a, a teen romantic comedy? How would you describe it? Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it's a, it's a dramedy, I would say, coming of age dramedy centered around two high school teenagers who have hated each other their entire lives. Uh, and their parents have disliked each other as well. But in their senior year of high school, they're forced to work together and they come to realize that they have more in common than they once thought. Uh, and even though the film is centered around teenagers, we got an unbelievable cast together. We got uh, Helen Hunt, uh, Christina Hendricks, uh, Uzo Aduba, Tom Bergeron. So we got a great cast of, of adults to surround the kids with, which was how we got the financing in place. Uh, the, the brief backstory on Candy Jar. So my younger sister, Sammy, has been an actress for over a decade. She got a job on Broadway when she was 11 years old. So she went with my mom from Broward, went up to New York, and my dad and I would go back and forth uh, to visit. So she was on Broadway. She subsequently got cast on a TV show called Blue Bloods, which has been on CBS for about 10 years now. And she then started working in films as well. And I wanted to write a role that would be a vehicle for her. So she is the star of Candy Jar. I actually wrote another film first. It was too expensive to make though. So her agent was like, why don't you put together an independent film where Sammy could be the star, but we could surround her with people that would bring a lot of financing into the movie. So that's what I did. I wrote Candy Jar. Uh, that was in 2014. We got it to a producer later that year. The producer took it to Netflix at a time when they were greenlighting independent films for the first time. And they said, if you can get a cast that will bring in, you know, attract, it will bring it, it will attract an audience to the film, uh, then we'll greenlight it, we'll pay for it. And uh, that took a little bit of time. But once we got the cast in place, we were shooting in Georgia in 2017. And then it was on Netflix in 18. Now, I have to say, I'm infamously um, unfamiliar with movies. In fact, we have a bit, uh, a recurring bit on this podcast called Greg Doesn't Know Movies, in which uh, Christopher and my other son um, ask me basic questions that I simply can't answer because I don't know movies. But when I was researching Candy Jar, 
I was very impressed that I had actually heard of Tom Bergeron and Helen Hunt. So I, yeah. I can I can testify to people that there are actually big names in this film. Netflix actually has an algorithm where they can determine people's market value. Uh, I, I, I was not given access to that information, but I mean, Uzo is great. I mean, it was so interesting because her role on Orange is the New Black is so kind of out there. And she was playing this more straight-laced state senator uh, in Candy Jar, but that speaks to her talents as an actor. Uh, so it was a really great experience all around. I would pay big money to find out more about that uh, Netflix algorithm. <clears throat> well, that's their secret sauce. That's their secret sauce, right? I mean, that's how they keep churning out content that people want to see because they are recording what you're searching for. And based on what people are searching for, they can churn out content knowing that they don't have enough of this or this type of movie they need more of. And they can literally just create what you want to see. I'm interested in how you came up with that exact plot to a movie and what the process was trying to write a role for your sister. Yeah, I mean, so like I said, I had written something before Candy Jar for Sammy that was just too expensive to make. It was a period film, which makes the costs, you know, exorbitant. Uh, but one thing that uh, happened with Candy Jar that really has not happened to me since, uh, the idea just kind of struck me. And when the idea struck me, I had a pretty good sense of what needed to happen for us to get to the end of the story. Oftentimes, writers will have an idea. There'll be that spark. But once you get after the first few pages, it becomes a little bit more challenging to see where the story is headed. I had a very clear understanding early on of what these characters were about, where they were headed, what their goals were. Uh, and so I wrote the first draft of the script in about two weeks, and then we got it to her agent soon thereafter. Uh, so that has not happened to me since. I have worked on other projects. We have a couple others in development that uh, are moving along very nicely. But in terms of the spark and actually getting it in, you know, on paper, that's uh, that's something that you really, I mean, I, I wish I could tell you there's some like magic magic formula, but sometimes you'll just be inspired to write something. And then other times you really have to take the time to plan it out. Like there are books out there that walk you through screenplay structure because it's not enough to have an idea. You have to be able to get it through the typical, you know, three act formula that most movies adhere to uh, in order for you to have a, a decent shot of, of getting it produced. I was curious, like what, once the script is bought, like, are you just sitting back waiting to watch it? Like what, how much are you involved in like the casting? Did you have say in that at all? And just like the making of it? Yeah, I mean, so it, that's a great question. And Candy Jar was definitely an atypical experience. As a first time writer, it's pretty rare for folks to have a say in who gets to be in the movie, but right. I was pretty sense. adamant about the fact that they were not making the movie without Sammy, my sister, being the star, which is a huge ask for a first time writer. But, uh, you know, Sammy deserved the part. I firmly believe and maintain that there is no one who could have done the role better than Sammy. Did they um, ask, so did they ask her to read or anything to like make, to, to even verify that she like had the, you know. Well, she's been starring on a TV show for 10 years. That's true. That's true. So I'm sorry. I forgot it's not like that. she's like some random actress, okay. right? She never had a credit to her. So she starred in big movies before. Um, so, it, I, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't that crazy of an ass, but th that was something that is very atypical. Typically as a writer, you would sell the project to a studio or to a production company. You might get a polish or a rewrite. Uh, but after that, it's in the director's hands. Sometimes they don't even allow the writer on the set. Uh, so it's really hands off. But in this case, especially since my sister was the star and we were also both co-producing the film, we had a decent amount of creative control. So um, Chad, is, is your next book going to involve uh, 
a, a guy who runs for local office in Broward is elected and then works his way up to president? Is that a possible premise? Well, I mean, I, this, this campaign in and of itself has been enough for a story, right? I mean, because I, I, I started back in November. I did something that no one has done before. I got into my car with my sister, Sammy, by the way. And we drove 4,000 miles and we visited every elections office in the state of Florida. So we went to 67 counties. I personally met with 30 supervisors of elections to try to find best practices to bring back to Broward. Uh, and then once the world shut down in March, I decided to put together a virtual internship program. So I now have about 80 interns working for me virtually. They are from 19 states. Half of them are from uh, you know, South Florida, but the other half are from all over the country. And uh, we're doing unprecedented amounts of voter outreach. And these are folks that I've literally never met in person. So this campaign has been quite the experience. And uh, you know, win or lose, it, it, was, it was awesome. But obviously winning, is, winning would be a lot better. That's um, interesting that you visited every uh, elections office. And I'm curious because everything is now so polarized. Yeah. Um, by party, when you when you're visiting an election office run by a Republican, are you getting any pushback or a cold shoulder? What, what reaction did you get generally? They were so happy that I came. Uh, and yeah. it, it, I was endorsed by the Sun Sentinel. One of the things the Sun Sentinel did was they reached out to other supervisors of elections that I met. And they had the same impression. Because here's the thing, when things go south in Broward County, it undermines confidence in their county as well. Because Florida just gets put on the map for elections issues. But if you're up in uh, you know, Alachua County and your elections went well, the headline is that Florida had problems because of Broward or because of Palm Beach. So all these supervisors have an interest in competent leadership taking the, the reins in Broward County. So they were more than eager to chat with me, let me know what works for them uh, so that we could share best practices and get this elections operation and work in order. Chad, um, thanks much for joining us. I, I really mean it. Best of luck to you. Uh... In, uh, in your film future and on election day and all that stuff. Thanks, appreciate it. Thank you, I, I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks, Chad Klitzman, politician, screenwriter, or screenwriter, politician, whichever you prefer. We, we said from the beginning, we were gonna throw you curveballs here and, and this was one, hope you enjoyed it. And now the Mount Greg Moore name game is back at you with the G edition and G whiz. It's a good one. We I mean, present. I mean, we have to be doing Greg, right? Like you can't be doing a Mount Greg more of names and not do Greg. We're legit here. We follow the rules. Oh, uh, this is a formatted segment and G whiz. This is a good one. Uh, we get it with the G whiz. Like, yeah. Nobody says G whiz. I'm trying to bring it back. We present the five most popular American first names starting with G over the past hundred years. You're talking fast again. According to government records. Then we list our Mount Gregmore of the number one ranked G name. Number five, Gloria. Number four, <laughs> Gerald. Number three, Gregory. Really? Greg's in the house. Wait, but that means we're not doing it. Oh, this is so Number annoying. two, Gary. See you, Gary. And the number one G, George. And now, the Mount Gregmore of Georges. I gotta tell you, this was the toughest one yet. Ton of great Georges out there. First, our honorable mention, an all-star trio of fictional TV stars, George Costanzo, George Jefferson, and George Jetson with his dog, Elroy. Wait, so three people are in honorable mention? Yep, that's right. <sighs> and now, the number five George of all time, 
one of the great stand-up comics ever. Brilliant, sardonic. Remember the hippy-dippy weatherman? George Carlin. That's a good one. He would have loved our last guest. Number four. He put his name on a compact cooking grill. Also a pretty fair heavyweight boxer. Bonus points because he named every one of his sons George. <laughs> it's George Foreman. <laughs> Number three. This gets the presidential seal of approval. It's George Bush, both HW and W. Tied for number three. Wow. The presidential Bushes. Number two. My sweet Lord, we couldn't forget this man. Of course, George Harrison. And now the number one George ever born. Well, no duh. He's the father of our country. Oh, God. You know him as George Washington. You had to go him, huh? Think of all the, the, the great Georges we had to leave off. Lucas, Patton, Michael, Gershwin, Clooney, Brett, Burns, among others. I mean, and, and honestly, on a serious note, I didn't forget George Floyd, but chose not to involve that tragedy into this silly bit. Uh, so that's the G's. Those were fine names. Those were, we had a lot of celebrity, like a lot of good choices. Like I'm, I'm fine with the list. I like George Carlin. I'm glad like everything there, but I'm just okay. disappointed that we didn't do a damn Mount Gregmore of Greg's. Like All you right. need to do Greg there. Okay. Just to shut you up. I'm going to do that. We're going to, we're going to give you a bonus. Here. A bonus Mount Greg. Yes. A bonus Mount Gregmore. A completely okay. unplanned. Off the top of the head, Mount Gregmore of Greg? Right off the top of the dome. Okay, you ready? Honorable mention. Me! That's right. I don't deserve to be here, but it's my bleeping podcast. <laughs> Number five. Wait, wait, are you like what's the like you're doing like, so Greg's count, Greg's and Gregory's, obviously. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna bend the rules for this one. Okay. Greg's of all sorts. Okay. Number five. He was the American cyclist who kicked ass in the Tour de France years before Lance Armstrong and did it without cheating. Greg Lamond. I've lost all enthusiasm for this bit because I Number have no four. idea who that is. Wait, are, are Greg's with two G's allowed in this? Like, um, No. Are you insane? Greg's with two G's are looked down upon in the Greg kingdom. I want nothing to do with them. Poor Kevin Greg. Zagaki. All right, number four. He was the cool one in the bunch. Team Chick Magnet, Greg Brady. Oh my God. I feel like you legitimately could have made this Mount, Mount Greg Moore. That's how sad <laughs> these names are so far. Number three, from the land down under, there's a shark on the first tee. It's Greg Norman. He's good. That one Number out. two, he found the corners and painted the black of the plate all the way to Cooperstown, Greg Maddox. I like it. I like it. And now, the history reigning Greg for all time. He was a legendary American actor. Holy Atticus Finch. It's Gregory Peck. Who the hell is that? Who's that? Who's Gregory Peck? Yeah, I don't know Gregory Peck. Oh, come on, whippersnapper. All right. All right. The idea of a Mount Gregmore of Greg's was better than the actuality of it. <laughs> okay. Thank you, I think. <laughs> Uh, at least I made the list as an honorable mention. So I feel like something. you could have been number three on that list. Like I don't. Yeah. Like, I'm gonna okay. actually redo my. As soon as we hang up here and uh, stop this podcast, I'm gonna redo my resume, and uh, and mention that I actually was voted as one of the all-time 
top Gregs because that's legit. It happened on the podcast. I can now put that on my resume. No Greg McElroy. Yeah, there weren't uh, a lot of great Gregs. I did consider Greg Gumble. I think was one I considered, <laughs> but uh, you know, sorry, Greg Gumble, uh, didn't quite make the list. All right, always love Mount Gregmore. Now we're gonna veer to a book author because I love the premise of this book. The author's name is Brad Baluchian, and the book is called The Wax Pack on the Open Road in Search of Baseball's Afterlife. Let's get to it. Thanks a lot for being here. Your new book, uh, it's called The Wax Pack on the Open Road in Search of Baseball's Afterlife. You had me at the title. I love the wax pack. Uh, you know, you're, you're talking to somebody who was a kid collected baseball cards over like a, a seven year period from like late sixties into mid seventies. And, uh, I still have boxes, shoe boxes of those old baseball cards that I can't bear to throw away. So this book is sort of in my wheelhouse and, um, I'm just wondering what inspired you to write it and, uh, and why 1986, which was the season of the pack of cards that you investigated. Sure. Well, as a kid growing up, uh, I would go down to the local pharmacy and get a, a pack of baseball cards with my allowance whenever I could. And so I accumulated, you know, thousands of them. And the, the first year that I collected cards as a kid was 1986. And so that year stood out to me as kind of, you know, the, the, the most obvious year that I could, I could go to in doing this project. And in terms of the idea and everything, I, Several years ago, I, I just had this moment of inspiration where I realized that a, the pack, the wax pack, reminded me of a book. You know, it's sort of the shape and the 15 cards and a pack, 15 chapters in a book. And I thought it'd be a really original idea to have this conceit of writing a book based on whatever random guys would be in one pack. And also growing up, my favorite players were what they called the common cards, the underdog type guys. And, uh, and I knew that in any pack, most of the cards are going to be common cards. And so it gave me an opportunity to track down and write about these guys that, that were my heroes as a kid and find out what happened to them in the 30 years since they stopped playing. You traveled more than 11,000 miles talking to a lot of players who probably hadn't been interviewed in, like you say, in 30 years or 25 years. Uh, what did you discover uh, during this research that uh, surprised you most or enlightened you? As you said, if you're uh, looking for a, a book about baseball statistics and analysis, you know, don't buy this book. It's not that kind of book. It's really about the self-discovery. It's about themes that are way beyond baseball. And one of the things that I came away with was just how much we all have in common with these players. To me, I, it kind of demystifies some of that larger-than-life idolatry that we have for these players and kind of takes them off the pedestal, but in a way that I think is very reassuring and comforting to see that these guys are flawed, that they, you know, they deal with the same issues in life that we deal with, whether it's, you know, drinking or issues with, a, with their parents or with a spouse or kids or what, you know, health issues. I mean, they're all coping with the same kinds of things that we do. And I think one of the themes in the book is looking at, at how, what our relationship with uh, fear and anxiety is like, how do we, how do we manage anxiety and fear? 
So this was a totally random pack or did you like open a dozen packs and pick the one that was the most interesting to you or? As I, I say in a footnote in the book, I actually, I opened several packs uh, because if I, if I had opened just one, you know, and several of the guys had passed away or something, you know, they didn't, they all lived in the same part of the country. It wouldn't make for a very good road trip book, right. but sure. I didn't mix cards between packs. So I picked the pack that everyone, but one guy was still alive. Uh, who was the uh, gentleman who passed? Uh, Al Cowens. Okay. Um, yeah, there, there's an interesting mix in this pack because you've got a Hall of Famer and Carlton Fisk. You've got big names like Doc Gooden. But frankly, there were three or four guys who, who I'd never heard of or had forgotten. I'm, I'm curious, who was the, the nicest guy, the, the most appreciative to be talked to after all this time? Well, I think the most appreciative was the most obscure, which was Jaime Kokenauer. Um, pitched Great for name. The- for a few years. And, you know, it's interesting that the book is kind of the tortoise and the hare story in that Kokenauer was by far the least accomplished baseball player, but probably the most well-adjusted and content human being in his life, you know, and it begs the question, would you rather be Carlton Fisk and have all that fame, but maybe have a hard time separating your baseball identity from the rest of your identity or would you rather be Jaime Kokenauer and be kind of forgotten in baseball but have a very fulfilling life after baseball who was the toughest guy to talk to maybe somebody that you found surly or or very hesitant to do it to participate anybody like that so a few of the guys didn't just didn't talk to me so Fisk for example that story Fisk just flat out said no and so that chapter, there's two chapters, one called Chasing Carlton, one called Catching Carlton, where I, uh, and this just goes, you know, my, my method in this book, I'm very much an active character and participant in the story. Right. And so in the first Fisk chapter, I found out where he golfs at this really private resort in Sarasota, <laughs> Florida, and I posed as a millionaire home buyer <laughs> so I could sneak onto the course and try to ambush him. And so that, you know, is an example of the extremes that I went to to try to find guys. And Vince Coleman was another one that didn't want to talk to me. So with Vince, I went to Jacksonville where he grew up and I found his high school and his church and his childhood home. And I visit all these places. I'm I'm just trying to picture Carlton Fisk's reaction when you, (laughs) when you under false pretenses, uh, are up directly asking him and telling telling him who we are and trying to explain it. He strikes me as somebody who, I don't know, might have a temper. Yeah, Fisk is uh, not known for his, uh, well, in, in fact, the guy that wrote the biography on Fisk, Doug Wilson, had a quote in his book where he says, Carlton Fisk never won any nice guy awards. <laughs> so you can verify that. There you point. go. There you go. Uh, who, who else uh, declined to be interviewed among the, the 14 living Dwight Gooden is sort of another sad story where he, he was the one guy that wanted me to pay him. And then that chapter is about me being in his living room um, and him not showing up. So, <laughs> yeah, that's, that, that sounds like Doc Gooden. So before we let you go, Brad, I would like you to elaborate uh, a little bit more on, on, on your valiant attempt to get Carlton Fisk to talk to you, because I'm still trying to picture uh, you finagling your way, which good journalists do, finagling your way onto a private golf course and approaching him in front of the fourth tee. I don't know what, what, what were the details of that and his reaction to it? Well, I, I can't, I, I mean, come on, I can't, I can't give all that away right now, right? That's, 
that's the that's the hook for for that that chapter and um okay. I'll, I'll just say that it's worth reading because it was a really entertaining process to try to get in there okay. but but there were no uh i was not arrested no i was not arrested i did not get thrown off any properties no it's okay. all it's all good hey um best of luck with this book seriously it's um it's called the wax pack uh, on the open road in search of baseball's afterlife by uh, great premise i don't even know if kids collect baseball cards anymore but uh nostalgia is obviously a part of what you've done here and uh, and it's just a great idea happy to have uh, had you on the podcast brad thank you all right let's put a bow on this one uh thanks to both of our guests today uh they may not have been guys you'd heard of before this but uh we hope you enjoyed those segments we like to uh bring you something different every week and and be a variety show and we thank uh, mostly those of you who are listening right now because you're my pod family you're the ones who we do this show for and who support us and please continue to subscribe rate and review and don't you dare miss next week's episode because it's our silver pot anniversary it's our 25th and you know we're going to throw a party a pod a so we'll see you next week 25 is not a big number it's the biggest you're so annoying with this stuff thank you thanks a lot Bye-bye.